Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Philosophy channel of the New Books Network. My name is Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the channel with Carrie Figder. Carrie is associate professor of philosophy at the University of Iowa. Today, my guest is Professor Kevin Vallier. His new book is titled Liberal Politics and Public Faith Beyond Separation. It's recently been published by Routledge. Vallier is Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Bowling Green State University. In a liberal democracy, citizens share political power as equals. This means that they must decide laws and policies collectively, yet they disagree about fundamental questions regarding the value, purpose, and meaning of life. So what role should their convictions concerning these matters play in their public activity as citizens? According to familiar answers, citizens must bracket or constrain the role that their religious convictions play in their public lives. But many religious citizens find this unacceptable, and some of them hold that their religious views should determine law and policy. But that, too seems unacceptable. In Liberal Politics and Public Faith, Kevin Vallier develops a novel view of the role of religious conviction and reasoning in liberal democracy. On his view, religious citizens will rarely need to constrain the role that their religious convictions play in their public activities. However, Vallier also contends that public officials and institutions cannot determine public policy solely on the basis of religious reasons. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Kevin Vallier. Hi, Bob. How are you doing today? Really well. How about you? Oh, doing fine, doing fine. Thank you for joining us today on New Books and Philosophy. I'm delighted, just delighted to be here. Great. And thank you, listener, uh, for tuning into the podcast. My guest, as you know, is uh, Kevin Vallier, and his new book is titled Liberal Politics and Public Faith Beyond Separation. Now, as the title of the book suggests, this book is an examination of a range of philosophical problems concerning the role of religious conviction on maybe religious reasoning um, in liberal democratic uh, politics. Um, I suppose one way of stating that problem or that, that that host of problems in a very general way is uh, the way that is sort of suggested to us by John Rawls, um, paraphrasing, how is it possible for individuals who are divided uh, over life's big questions, we might say, to nonetheless share political power as equal citizens. Um, now, a range of familiar answers to this question, I think answers that will be familiar to the listeners, um, have it that religious citizens, in order to live uh, as equals with others who don't share their religious convictions, must in some way constrain or contain or bracket the role of their religious convictions when it comes to acting as a citizen or engaging in public life. Um, Vallier rejects this picture, 
Um, he thinks that uh, religious views and reasons and convictions should have or can have a much uh, more robust role in the life of the liberal democratic citizen and the liberal democratic polity. Um, there's a lot to talk about here. There are lots of issues afoot. Um, but we'll begin as we usually do. Uh, Kevin, why don't you start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself? All right. Um, so I grew up in South Alabama uh, on the Gulf Coast, and um, I was born in 1982. And as I say in the beginning of the book, you know, I've, I've never known a world without or never known a country without the culture war. Um, I, uh, when I was 13, I became an atheist. Um, and my family was very religious, uh, and my school was very religious and my town was very religious and, uh, questions about the rationality of religious belief and the role of religion in politics, uh, were just sort of in the air. There were, um, always questions that, uh, arose about, uh, should we do this or that thing, um, should we, for instance, be teaching evolution in the classroom? I remember my freshman uh, biology course, uh, a student um, quietly and nicely excused herself from the lesson, and the teacher was you know, perfectly happy uh, to excuse her. Uh, I thought it was appalling. Um, and interestingly, uh, as I sort of got older and and went to college, I found myself in St. Louis, which is also uh, actually a pretty religious area, but um, I was at WashU, uh, Washington University in St. Louis, which is uh, a very secular campus, um, and I found um, that I was in the opposite position. I found myself friendly to the people of faith that were there and more worried about the hostility, uh, misunderstanding that I would uh, uh, experience from uh, many secular students and uh, professors. I feel like that this experience put me in a position, I think, to kind of see it from both sides. I, I've been religious. I've been non-religious. I uh, have been, I grew up in an area that was very religious, but I've spent most of my life since then in very non-religious environments. Um, and it all, it just sort of became clear to me that most of these people are pretty good people, um, but they just, don't think that about each other. Uh, and if only they could sort of be made to see, then perhaps we could get along. And this drove uh, a great deal of my uh, interest in this issue. I've been interested in religion for a long time. I've been interested uh, in politics for almost as long. And so as I uh, made my way through graduate school, I uh, had the opportunity to write uh, on the topic. And the uh, theory of public reason liberalism, I thought, with particularly its stress on reasonable disagreement. Um, was in many ways the right starting point for grappling with these issues. And so I like to think I ended up with a kind of moderate position. It, there are a lot of restraints on um, whether there can be religiously backed laws, but not a lot of restraints on religious discourse, uh, that there are many ways in which I um, accept the religious criticisms of public reason, but I hold on to the liberal view nonetheless. So I kind of see myself as trying to position myself between my experience um, in Alabama and my uh, experience in the academy. Well, that's interesting. Um, and uh, the way that you start the book um, uh, is very compelling because uh, it seems that 
Um, one of the nice things about this particular area within political philosophy uh, is that um, you know most people have had some encounter with what we might very broadly call the, the sort of the question or the issue of uh, the role of religious uh, conviction or religious life uh, in politics. Um, so let me ask you then uh, to start us off then, but can you give us a little bit of the background of the sort of philosophical uh, debates about this? Because, you know, religion and politics as a term uh, gets used to name all kinds of different things. Um, but, um, you know, as you were just mentioning, political liberalism mm-hmm. and public reason, um, these are uh, uh, sort of well, well, I, don't, I was about to say well-analyzed uh, concepts. Maybe they're not well-analyzed concepts. They're very uh, popular concepts yes. among political philosophers. Um, can you give us a little bit of the background of the sort of the philosophical issue of um, religious conviction in liberal politics? Sure. Um, you know, in, in some ways, there's sort of two historical stories, one that's uh, grand uh, and 400 years old or so, and the other that's um, 20 years old. I mean, the bigger, the, the big overarching historical question um, is whether there can be a just state that does not take sides um, being for a particular religious view or a particular secular view. And is, is it possible to have a state that is liberal in the sense that it is not sort of taking sides um, on these kinds of disputes, not just religious disputes, um, but also philosophical disputes? Um, I think that as a result of the progress of secularization in Europe after the Second World War um, and the secularization of much of the American Academy without the secularization of the American populace, uh, these questions started to arise again um, because I think people's opinions started to diverge more in liberal democracies than uh, they had perhaps uh, 50 years before that. And I think there was a sense that um, one side sort of said, well, yeah, I mean, the liberal state shouldn't just favor one particular religion. And that means really you ought to keep your religion out of politics. Uh, and that's an oversimplification, but it represents sort of one pole in the debate. So, you know, this, these are people motivated by the values of liberty and equality and neutrality. And they just understand that ideal as applying that we ought to conduct our political lives in terms of shared reasoning and shared uh, and even secular values. On the other side um, were a variety of religious liberals um, and also some religious conservatives and anti-liberals who were deeply skeptical of this project. The anti-liberals were skeptical of liberalism as such. They didn't think and they still don't think that uh, that liberalism is a coherent philosophy and has a coherent approach to religion and politics. In many ways, they say it's a. it's almost dishonest because it claims to be neutral, but it really takes the side of secularism against religion. Now, the religious liberals um, say that they believe in freedom and equality and neutrality. They just think that the kind of more secular liberals misinterpret these ideas, that neutrality, uh, not taking sides, means letting everyone bring their convictions into politics uh, and working it out democratically. So the way I see it is that um, the debate cropped up around people who affirm certain key deep commitments to things like individual rights and democratic decision making, but who deeply disagreed about its implications for the conduct of citizens, um, in particular their behavior in public discourse and a lot more recently uh, their role in uh, generating and justifying 
religious exemptions. Now, um, the way this debate played out in philosophy was that in the late 80s and early 90s, um, a variety of people started to write on this topic uh, for a variety of reasons. I think a lot of it was kind of a response to the Reagan era and the increased political power of the religious right. Um, it, you know, continued uh, long after uh, words because I think uh, of the issues raised um, with the treatment of Muslims and liberal democracies that became all the more acute uh, after 2001. But the academic side of this debate began uh, mostly in the U.S. and philosophers, political theorists, law professors, theologians uh, began to develop different accounts of citizen conduct and what, what religion's relationship to it. You know, there's Kent Greenewald, there's Robert Audi, um, there's Michael Perry, um, a variety of people. And then came John Rawls. And as with so many other issues, when John Rawls gave his take on a position, um, he became the center figure uh, in that uh, literature, uh, for better or worse. Um, and his view became the focal point. And uh, I'll just try, even though it can be a bit uh, uh, complicated, to explain Rawls's uh, position. <laughs> so everyone uh, listening to this podcast has almost certainly um, heard of Rawls's book, A Theory of Justice. And they've probably heard of the latter book, Political Liberalism. And uh, the question of how the two are related is actually a matter of controversy. Um, the way I understand the difference is that in a theory of justice, Rawls is trying to develop uh, an account of justice that not only says what justice requires, but shows that the principles of justice can govern a sort of public, stable, liberal democratic order where people can look at their institutions, see that they manifest a commitment to liberal principles and and see complying with those principles as a proper part of their good. Uh, but what happened was that when Rawls was sort of rethinking his idea or thinking through his idea of a sort of public and stable order, he realized that um, people were going to disagree about what a good life consists in a great deal, uh, more than he'd realized in the theory of justice. He came to believe, I think rightly, that there are various factors in philosophical and political reasoning that would lead the free exercise of that reasoning uh, to generate systematic disagreement. So in many ways, it's a post-enlightenment conception of reason. You have an enlightenment attitude that if we can set aside superstition and reason carefully together, we'll come to agree. And Rawls is accepting, I wouldn't use the word post-modern, um, but this thought that free exercise of reason is not only going to allow people to deeply disagree, it's going to allow people to be reasonable and religious. And if that's the case, why then... Um, Religious people often think about things a good bit differently than the sort of secular audience of a theory of justice. For instance, they might put transcendent goods, concerns about eternal life ahead of um, this worldly values. And so Rawls had to rethink his view to try to show that his principles of justice um, could be justified to multiple reasonable points of view um, or, uh, and so he came to call his conception of justice a political conception of justice on the grounds that it could be formulated and justified based on uh, the shared ideas in liberal democratic politics, particularly our shared conceptions of society and the citizen. 
and that that political conception could become the object of what Rawls called an overlapping consensus of reasonable comprehensive doctrines. An overlapping consensus occurs more or less when uh, each uh, person or view, it's sort of ambiguous in the text, can see the political conception of justice as, as either compatible with, or at least that it does not normally conflict with um, uh, their political con- uh, uh, the political conception. So there should not be a fundamental conflict uh, between, say, reasonable religious points of view uh, and the shared political conception that we can formulate and justify independently of that point of view. So Rawls's hope was that we could have a stable and just order governed by principles of justice uh, that we could all accept uh, based on our differing points of view. Now, out of this, Rawls developed an account of legitimacy, um, particularly uh, what justified the state in engaging in the process of making and imposing law. And along with that, he developed a kind of principle of of, uh, civic ethics, how to conduct oneself that he called the duty of civility. And the duty of civility, um, as Rawls ultimately came to understand it, allowed for people to use religious, as, or as Rawls broadly called them, comprehensive reasons, so you could draw on your philosophical doctrine as well as your religious doctrine, um, that you could use them, you could bring them into politics, you could vote on the basis of them, you could express them in public fora, so long as when it came to constitutional essentials and matters of basic justice, you were prepared to appeal to rationales and arguments that were rooted in the shared political values of the political conception of justice. So, so long as you were prepared to appeal to those values primarily in public life when really essential stuff was at stake, Rawls thought that uh, you were basically being a good citizen. So this Rawls um, is all within what Rawls called the doctrine of public reason, and because he thought that the sorts of reasons that we ought to be using are uh, what have come to be called public reasons, which I the concept, I think, can be differently understood, but is sometimes, I think, mistakenly equated with the idea of having uh, shared reasons, reasons that all members of the public affirm. Now, when you accept that that's the right way to conduct yourself, what becomes of reasons that we don't share? Well, um, there is going to be a kind of liberal impulse to say, you know, religious reasons are okay, but they're also potentially dangerous. They're potentially divisive. Um, they can be disruptive, disrespectful, authoritarian, and so there should be some degree of control that public discourse has uh, over the use of those uh, forms of reasoning. Uh, now, once Rawls started laying out uh, what I call uh, principle of restraint, you know, his, his duty of civility, uh, this just created a huge range of disagreements. Around about 1993, there's an issue of the San Diego Law Review, which is a big symposium, and it has basically all the major players in it. Um, And some of them are agreeing with Rawls or sort of agreeing with Rawls. Others are really sharply disagreeing with Rawls. And we quickly uh, had a debate um, where Rawls had the kind of secularist position, which is kind of odd because, I mean, really, he was trying very hard not to privilege secularism. Uh, and then there was this sort of other perspective that it was, you know, sometimes people self-identified as liberals, but they said, no, the duty of civility or the idea of public reason shouldn't serve 
as a principle of restraint. And so the philosophical debate focused um, uh, in a very effective uh, and I think ultimately illuminating way uh, on, on whether principles like the duty of civility could be justified uh, for various on various different kinds of uh, political and religious views. And you immediately started to get a series of religious critics that were actually quite philosophically sophisticated. There had always been critics sort of outside philosophy. Um, for instance, uh, uh, Richard John Newhouse, who's um, one of the most famous American conservatives of the latter half of the 20th century, wrote a book called The Naked Public Square, uh, where he bemoaned the sort of similar idea of uh, the privatization of religious belief. But you got a series of articles and books that became almost over the course between, say, 1993 to 2003, became more and more sophisticated uh, until we got to what I regard as the culmination of those criticisms and Christopher Eberle's book, um, Religious Conviction and Liberal Politics, which is, I think, full of really powerful um, and in some ways sort of uh, very challenging criticisms of the public reason tradition. Right, absolutely. It's a great book. So when and you've 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 written on it as well. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's something to sort of be contended with, even though we don't uh, agree ultimately with its conclusions. Um, right. So when I was in graduate school and uh, you know sort of figuring out what I was interested in, I started graduate school in two thousand five, um, and I read the book in I believe two thousand six and seven. Um, I started to think, oh well, you know, look. Uh, these Everly criticisms, you know, they make a certain amount of sense, um, but there's something really attractive about the Rawlsian view, and can I have my cake and eat it too? And that was really the thing that drove my dissertation and that drove um, the sort of heavy revision and editing that became the book. It was my attempt to say, by and large, the Rawlsian view can survive these criticisms, but it cannot survive them unchanged. And so the thought was to tease out uh, in book form how those changes would go and the resulting approach to religion that would result. And I like to think that I've got a position that is far less inflammatory to the religious critics of public reason, but that is still ultimately a public reason view. Great. So let's let me ask you then to um, uh, to spell out. Exactly. So it's important, right, that this is this is a book that is that takes itself to be a um, presenting a view that should be pleasing, um, at least to, in, in some degree, to um, liberal political philosophers mm-hmm. uh, of a late Rawlsian stripe. Yep. Um, so you want to show that. Uh, let me see if I can if I'm going to get this right, um, that. Public, le- public reason liberals, roughly liberal political philosophers who have been influenced by Rawls' second book and think there's something important going on in political liberalism, um, have available to them a position uh, about the role of religious conviction and the place of religious reasons in liberal political discourse and policy making um, that is less severe than um than Rawls's view and a lot less severe than some of Rawls's um uh some people who have developed Rawls's views uh beyond Rawls mm-hmm. like Steve Macedo right. for example. Right. Um so let's just get back then to sort of the first move which is this you know, wh- 
Can you tell us a little bit about what do you mean by public reason liberalism? So I think of public reason liberalism as the combination of traditional liberal commitments to liberal rights, equality before the law, uh, equal voting rights, democratic decision making, constitutional government, and a kind of constraint on the use of state power. And it's this constraint on the use of state power uh, that distinguishes public reason views from lots of other liberal views. And the constraint says roughly that you may only the state may only impose coercive laws or policies or constitutional uh, rules on citizens if it can be shown that they have sufficient reason to accept the law or whatever coercive uh, event or act. Uh, is being proposed. So the idea is that state coercion has to be justified for each person uh, suitably idealized or or understood. Now, this gets complicated rather quickly, but that's the the rough idea that you want to make sure that law, um, that governing bodies, coercive power can be justified to multiple reasonable perspectives. Otherwise, it's not permissible. But that's what I take to be the essence of uh, what makes public reason liberalism distinct from other liberal views. Right. So that um, it's uh, let me see if I'm getting this right. So that the public reason version of liberalism is focused on uh, a particular view of what it takes to justify state coercion. Right. Uh, whereas you might think that, uh, you know, a utilitarian liberal view doesn't think that coercion is hard to justify because you just do what's you know, maximizes happiness for the greatest number, um, even if you can't justify to the, the minority what's being done to them, mm. the public reason view wants to say justification or the, the, the justification of coercion has to be acceptable um, uh, uh, to everybody to whom everybody who's subjected to it. Mm -hmm. um, so the core of your book then is trying to spell out um, a principle mm -hmm. Of public justification. Um, and so uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, how how that that part works? Sure. Um, and I think I'll do it by way of trying to clear up what I regard uh, as a confusion. Um, one thing that was also a really big deal in the 80s and the 90s was this and, and still today in political philosophy is this idea of a deliberative democracy. Right. And. A deliberative conception of democracy builds a lot of the legitimacy of democracy around uh, the public the quality and degree and breadth of public deliberation that occurs uh, prior to democratic decision making. You can be a public reason liberal without being a deliberative Democrat. You can be a deliberative Democrat without being a public reason liberal, but they overlapped a lot. And so a lot of people started thinking about public justification as, in essence, something that we do with one another. Like it's like. It's a way of talking to each other prim primarily. So when people are thinking about public reasons, they're thinking about reasons that are appropriate to use in public conversation, um, reasons in public deliberation. Um, whereas I understand that as a particular way of specifying the process by which we publicly justify coercion. Um, but I think of public justification uh, in a more general and abstract way. Let me just sort of lay it out uh, for Philosophers, mm -hmm. I want to say that a public justification is a three-place relation between an agent, her reasons, and some coercive proposal. We say that a law is publicly justified for an agent when she has sufficient reason 
to endorse the proposal. So public justification is a kind of social state. It specifies the relationship between an agent and a law such that the agent's reasons endorse or justify that law. Now, there is, I think, a great deal of uh, confusion in the literature where people, when they're talking about, oh, well, we've got to publicly justify coercion to people. That's ambiguous. It's ambiguous between, oh, we need to talk it out. We need to publicly justify it to them. And the idea that it be justified for them. So the idea that, oh, we want to make sure that coercion can be justified to people. And those are actually different things, right? So you could engage in the process of justifying a proposal and fail to justify it, right? Or a proposal could be justified for someone even if no prior act of deliberation occurred. Um, So I think when people are attracted to the idea of public justification, the idea of public deliberation and shared reasoning is kind of brought uh, along in tow. Uh, and I think that that's an important mistake. So what I do um, sort of centrally in the book is try to set out, I think, the most general idea of public justification, which I generalize in the form of a public justification principle. And, you know, we can get into some of the, the technical details of it. Um, but in essence, it says that some coercive law or proposal um, is justified for members of the public when each member of the public suitably idealized has some sufficient reason of her own to endorse the law. That just spe- that's just a specification of when law is legitimate or permitted. Um, it doesn't say anything about how we arrive at it uh, at all. So my thought is that we reach principles for how to conduct ourselves in politics by first reflecting and defend- reflecting on, formulating and defending an idea of public justification. So I argue that that has to come first. And then when we lay out the public justification principle, we discover, oh, wow, this is an ambiguous principle. I mean, it can be fleshed out, you know, in a number of different ways. So the, the sort of key element that's at stake in the book is how to interpret the idea of sufficient reasons. So what do we mean when we say that someone has sufficient reason to endorse a law? Well, everyone, you know, is thinking about good or bad reasons. And I actually think that involves epistemology, as you do, um, although we think of it somewhat differently. Um, It involves thinking about what are good reasons, what are justified reasons, what is rational to believe or hold. um, How should one respond to this or that argument? Um, But the ambiguity... Uh, is in the strictures on the set of reasons that we allow to play a justificatory role. The Rawlsian view is that the reasons that are ultimately justificatory are have to be drawn from shared political values. And so we get something like what I call a shareability or shared reasons requirement. So the only reasons that can justify coercive law or be used to reject them are reasons that we can share in some sense. In a sense, it's not regularly spelled out. So I spent a lot of time trying to spell out what the mainline shared reasons view of public reason is. And it's something like this, that citizens, when they're suitably idealized, that is, when they have adequate information and have have reasoned uh, particularly well, uh, that all persons will come to endorse those reasons or rationales for the law or against the law. such that, you know, in a in a sort of very literal way, we can say, oh, yeah, this is these are the reasons of the public. You know, this is the public's sort of 
uh, argument or their series of arguments that convince them to support this or that proposal. Um, but you need to give an argument that that is the right way to make sense of um, the idea of sufficient reasons. And I think there aren't a lot of good arguments in the literature for this because I think that people just kind of run the ideas together. Uh, I've seen people repeatedly say, no, 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 no. The idea of public reason just is the shared reasons requirement. And I say, no, no, no. These are different things. We would have to give right. an argument. Right. And you're interested in sort of um, uh, challenging this particular understanding of the public justification principle um, because it looks as if uh, if one thinks that the only kinds of publicly justificatory reasons are shareable reasons, mm -hmm. then it's a very, very easy step to say, oh, and by the way, reasons that derive from your faith are paradigmatically non-shareable right, right. and so cannot be publicly justifi justifying. Yeah. Yeah. Justifying. Good. Yeah. So, and, and you know, I, when I get into the sort of the details in the book, I actually think it's a kind of difficult to get from the shared reasons requirement to a principle of restraint. Um, it, it can be, but, but it's definitely much easier <laughs> if you yeah. have that view and it certainly suggests itself very quickly. Um, the only reason I think it can be kind of difficult is because the shared reasons requirement is still just about what justifies coercion. It might turn out that bringing all of our reasons to bear may sort of increase the potency of shared reasons and justifying coercion in some way. I, I don't think that's doubtful, uh, but um, just being careful to be conceptually clear, uh, I think, has a great deal of value in trying to develop a kind of third way through this. Uh, debate, but that is the essence of the idea. Is that if you go with a shared reasons view, you may well end up with a pretty heavy duty restriction on religious reasons, since religious reasons aren't shared reasons. Even when there are lots of religious people in a society, they will have different religions um, or different denominational approaches and traditions. Uh, and as a result, those reasons sort of take a hit. Uh, and how much of a hit, you know, varies from theorist to theorist. It even varies across their career. I mean. Habermas has become much more friendly to religious reasoning. Rawls became friendlier. Um, Kals became friendlier. Uh, a lot of people have moved in that direction. So, but nonetheless, the shared reasons requirement and, and there's a, a related requirement, the accessible reasons requirement, I think are the sort of essence of the grounding for restraint. Um, and the public justification principle has to be settled upon First, so first you have to defend the generic form of the principle, and then you have to give an argument for the shared reasons requirement. And that's the place in the argument that I want to attack. So I want to undermine the inference from a public justification principle to something like a shared reasons requirement or what I call an accessible reasons requirement, which is a somewhat looser standard. Um, if I can block that first move, I may be able to show that the public justification principle is better understood in terms of a much wider set of justificatory reasons that will include many religious reasons. And I have to say, and I, I, I've, every talk I've given on this, I've needed to say something like this. You know, the view I have allows for, for many more justificatory reasons to come into politics, and we'll, we'll talk about um, the arguments for that. But what it doesn't do uh, is allow the justification of sectarian theocratic laws. Because just as 
um, religious people will be able to bring their religious reasons in to support a proposal. So other religious people and secular people will be able to bring in their own private reasons um, in order to defeat those coercive proposals. So as I say, I let religious reasons into public justification, but they probably don't get out in the sense that they alone <laughs> can justify a coercive law. In many ways, my view may actually put more constraints um, on lawmaking um, um, and sectarian lawmaking uh, than the mainline view. Okay, so perfect. Let, let, let's let's now get into the details of how you get there. So um, there are two sort of moving parts then in the positive proposal about how to um, properly understand uh, the public justification principle. Um, one is um, the distinction between um, uh, convergence and consensus mm -hmm. conceptions, and the other is a distinction between what we were just calling shareability. Uh, slash accessibility, and then your proposal, which is intelligibility. Yeah, yeah. Um, so can you spell out those two? So sure. you are a you're you're a a a convergence non consensus mm -hmm. theorist, yeah. and an intelligibility not shareability yeah. or accountability. Yeah, yeah. So let me you spell those. Yeah, two I'll out. spell them out. Um, because the uh, consensus convergence terms are actually uh, generalizations of the others. So, um. But let me start with the more complicated ideas. I take there to be roughly three standards uh, that set or that identify the set of justificatory reasons uh, in public reason. The shareability requirement says that uh, just justificatory reasons are all and only those that people will share or affirm at the right level of idealization. The accessibility requirement says that people don't have to agree on the reasons. But they do need to share evaluative standards. Um, so let me just you know, explain it with an example. Suppose you're in a scientific community um, and people share uh, the same data sets. They share access to the same theories, um, but they have and develop different arguments for different theories. And ultimately, those reasons are accessible to the people who have a different theory or point of view. Um, and I call views that endorse either a shareability or an accessibility requirement consensus views. They're views that require reasoning or standards of reasoning to somehow be shared, even though the accessibility requirement is somewhat weaker. Um, and depending on how you spell it out, it could be considerably uh, weaker. In contrast to either of those standards, what I call the intelligibility requirement. And the intelligibility requirement's key move is it allows into the set of justificatory reasons, reasons that can only be identified as such by diverse evaluative standards, um, but that nonetheless members of the public can see as reasons for those who offer them. So I'll explain this just a, by way of an example, and then I'll say uh, a bit more. So imagine that a Christian, a Muslim, and an atheist are in a room talking about some liberal democratic policy. The Muslim offers an argument based partly on the Quran. The Christian offers an argument based partly on the New Testament. The atheist does not recognize the Quran or the New Testament as divinely inspired documents because, of course, he denies that God exists. But if the Muslim were to start to say, oh, well, I support this because I believe Jesus Christ is the son of God, then the atheist would say, oh, 
I don't understand. I thought on your view, the Quran was the relevant standard. So it's the Quran that is justifying or driving these reasons. So in that case, the Muslim would be offering an unintelligible reason. The atheist can't even see it as justified for the Muslim, much less than for the atheist. So what I say is, as long as members of the public can see the reason as a reason for the person who offers it according to that person's variety of standards, it can enter in the process of public justification. And I call convergence views views that are in the vicinity of the intelligibility requirement. Um, because it allows for the sort of radical variation of evaluative standards. And again, just to sort of be clear, this, you know, it opens the gates to lots of religious reasons, uh, but it doesn't necessarily let them be in it, uh, uh, a justification for law because people may have their own intelligible reasons to reject that law. Can I, can I just ask a, 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 maybe a philosopher's question? Sure. Um, so let's take the kind of case you just you just spoke of mm-hmm. with the, the Muslim offering a what sounds a lot like uh, an explicitly Christian uh, uh, justification for some proposal that mm-hmm. he has made. And um, in your example, um, that seems like a violation of the intelligibility requirement, because um, for the audience to whom that reason is offered, it sounds as if. Um, that's a reason that shouldn't count as a reason given uh, what we understand or what we took to be the Muslims' evaluative standards. Right. Good. Um, uh, so I'm just wondering how much bite this has. So aren't there going to be all kinds of really difficult cases where um, uh, you offer me a reason, it sounds to me unintelligible, it doesn't sound to me like it, it jibes with your what I take to be your evaluative standards, um, but now I've got a choice to make. Um, I either see your reason as not passing the intelligibility uh, requirement or I take myself to have been mistaken about your evaluative standards. Right. Yeah. 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 And that looks like in the real life cases, it, it, it might be it, it might be a very difficult uh, question to settle, whether I've got the wrong conception of what your standards are um, or you've got an unintelligible reason. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, you lead with the revision of thinking you must be mistaken and you end with the, oh, it ultimately doesn't make sense. So when I think about, you know, I, I don't think public reason actually has a lot to immediately imply about the way that citizens should conduct their conversations with others. Um, but um, if I, you know, I were forced to articulate my own ethic, um, you know, and I, I think, you know, there are you know, good sort of moral grounds for this, that you you hear people out, you take what they're saying seriously, you give them the presumption of intelligibility, uh, just just on the presumption of charity. You think, well, you know, right. I know less about this than they do. And you, you listen and then you ask questions. You say, can you just tell me a bit more about how those fit together? Um, and if in the end you just can't fit it together, even from their point of view, then you say, you know, that that I can't see as counting for or against a law at all. Um, now, what you do in that circumstance, I mean, um, um, you know, it, it's going to be heavily context dependent. Um, so, you know, if I'm, you're act, actually conducting yourself in this way, yeah, I think, you know, you, you sort of second guess yourself and then you firm up your confidence as they continue not to make sense. Um, <laughs> so that's how I think it gets, uh, gets carried out, which is, you know, 
I know that that is very far from where our culture is in terms of discourse, because our assumption tends to be that the other uh, other person is up to no good and couldn't possibly have good reasons for what they have to say. They must be corrupted or stupid or propagandized. Um, but uh, I think the intelligibility requirement uh, has a kind of implication that I, I find quite attractive, which is that we say, look, this is not a reason for me, but it is a reason for you. Uh, and I don't think that has for the sort of metaethicists in the audience. Um, this isn't a claim about the sort of metaphysical status of reasons. It's just a, a claim about whether they count as justifications for laws or policies. So, you know, you say, well, that's it looks like a good reason for you to support the law, but it's not a good reason for me. So it built in is this acknowledgement that, you know, look what they may have their own reasons. In fact, I think this is a just sort of implicit in the idea, in many ways, explicit in the idea of an overlapping consensus. Because, um, I mean, at the end of the day for Rawls, people have to accept um, the political conception of justice and its associated institutions based on their comprehensive reasons. Rawls just doesn't want those comprehensive reasons to play a decisive role in public discourse. So I think that's my sort of main uh, difference with him. Okay, good. So, so any any intelligible reason then is admissible, um, or is public ju- publicly justificatory? Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Any intelligible okay. reason can enter into favoring a law or rejecting a law. Great. Um, can you say something a little bit more explicit about? Um, Something that that you, you you give a lot of attention to in the book because it is a very important philosophical issue, mm-hmm. uh, which is the idealization right, right, uh, right, right. Uh, stuff. Because it does seem as if um, part of what goes into uh, my judgment that your reason is intelligible yeah. <laughs> has to be you know I, that's not something I could find out by psychoanalyzing you. Right. Right? I mean, this has to be some kind of you know. Kevin thinks X, Y, and Z about the afterlife and about the status of the Bible mm-hmm. and about the, uh, 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 the, the, the dictates of this particular religious leader. Therefore, you know, uh, P is a perfectly intelligible entailment of those commitments. So it's got to be me interpreting what you say vis-a-vis intelligibility mm-hmm. with some sort of um, uh, uh, some stripping away of the reasoning errors that you might be prone to. Yeah, uh, or the information that you might not have. I love the- Eberly's term for this. He calls them your epistemic potmarks. Yes, right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So, um, in all the formulations of public justification views, either um, made explicit or suppressed, there is an idealization involved. So we're we're when what we're doing when we're idealizing is that we're ascribing some. Uh, maybe additional, maybe not additional information um, and some effective, respectable amount of good inference, uh, good inferential reasoning to people uh, in order to see if their view uh, even fits with you know, their own evaluative standards. Um, so we're, we're saying, you know, is this a good reason for them um, or are they just saying it because they, they're missing something really simple, like they've made just a really basic argumentative error, or there's just some really important, relevant fact that they just don't know, um, and they, they could very easily pick up. And if they did, then they would have a different view. Uh, and, you know, there are a lot of people that have objections to idealization, 
Um, they think it'd be patronizing not to just take people at their word. And I think that's a, an important concern. Um, one that I've been thinking about since the book. But um, I think we can at least see that doing the opposite may be worrisome as well, because then we end up basing laws and policies based on easily correctable inferences and informational errors, right? Um, just imagine this, the effect this would have on climate change policy. I mean, with the Pope's new encyclical, right? I've, I've just finished reading it. And it's looking to me like Catholics have pretty darn good reason to support certain restrictions on climate change now. Um, not necessarily decisive because these aren't infallible documents, but boy, are they weighty. But, you know, almost no Catholic, even committed ones, knows the details of what's in it. Um, but I do think it would be fair to say that insofar as they're Catholic and the and, and this is a big and, uh, acknowledge the teaching authority of the Pope, um, that they actually have some new reasons that they are not presently aware of. Maybe they didn't hear about the encyclical, but it's the sort of things they would say, oh, no, no, I see, I see. God hasn't just created us special. He's created the world special, and we've got to respect that. Um, right. I see, I see, I see. And we're really tearing this place apart, aren't we? Um, so I think that it's fair, and it makes a lot of sense to treat people in accordance with our best, most charitable model of their commitments rather than to just what you know they uh, happen to be upset about at the moment. Um, so, you know, that's why I think you have to engage in some idealization because you risk basing law on just really easily avoidable errors. Now, I've already alluded to certain problems with idealization, but I argue in the book that that's really a problem. These problems of, of being patronizing and so on are really only problems uh, if you radically idealize. So that is, if you ascribe to people perfect information, um, full rationality, you reconstruct their beliefs and desires and values in a way that might lead to a total revision. So um, imagine, for instance, that you adopted a standard of global coherence for idealization and their only justificatory reasons are the ones that were perfectly coherent with one another, such that there were no tensions at all in their web of belief. Um, they could end up with a radically, completely different view. Um, and you would be treating them as if, you know, suppose, for instance, that radical idealization would eliminate religious belief. Suppose that. I think that's not true. Um, but um, suppose that it were. Well, that would mean that none of these religious reasons would be count, count as justificatory, even if people were reasoning fairly well, just because we put them under this extreme idealization requirement. So I defend a kind of moderate version of idealization where um, – we apply, we model person's justificatory reasons based on relatively easily accessible information and the sorts of inferential uh, standards that we, it's fair to hold people to, uh, I think, in sort of detailed conversation and in careful thinking through their commitments. Um, so I, you know, I do work, you know, I understand there are going to be worries. A lot of people have worries about idealization, but I think a lot of them are addressed with moderate idealization. Moderate idealization is really the best of both worlds because you avoid the, the problems without idealizing. You avoid the problems with radical idealizing. That's really chapter right. five of the book. Right, right, right. So let's just fill out then the, 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 the positive upshot. Mm -hmm. So um, any intelligible reason is going to be publicly justificatory for the citizen mm -hmm. in his or her advocacy. Um, that would include voting and, and, and other kinds of acts of citizenship. Um, but you do think that there's an additional kind of um, uh, constraint 
maybe we should put it, mm-hmm. uh, on public official. Mm-hmm. I do, I do. Um, um, yeah. But I, I think I should say before this, um, I think it's probably worth just reviewing what my argument is for the convergence view um, yeah. um, before we get to the implications, which I think are a lot of fun. But um, the strategy can be described relatively straightforwardly. I try to find within public reason views certain values that almost all public reason liberals endorse. And then I try to show that those values favor the convergence view over the consensus view or that it favors the intelligibility requirement or under uh, over the shareability requirement. I also use those same values to vindicate moderate over radical idealization. But focusing on the convergence view, the intelligibility view, um, the two values that I identify are respect for individual liberty and integrity. That's one. And respect for reasonable diversity. And disagreement is too. So liberals, you know, are very, you know, have always prized the ability of an individual to live out her life in accordance with her own projects and plans and principles. Um, that's the sort of liberal part, the liberty part, right? Um, and I think that the convergence view better respects integrity than the consensus view because um, the uh, ability of the citizen to live in accordance with her religious convictions is much greater on the convergence view because it allows her to engage in political life based on her convictions. Um, Respect for diversity means acknowledging an appropriately broad range of considerations um, as reasonable for people to offer. It's a a kind of uh, virtue of persons that they can recognize that other people have come to very different conclusions for them, but they are nonetheless sincere uh, intelligent, respectable people. And I think the convergence view does a better job than the consensus view on this um, because it just allows for a greater diversity of reasons to have the relevant political impact. So it's really just a kind of you know dominance argument. Here are two fundamental values, integrity and respect for reasonable pluralism, um, and they favor convergence views over consensus views. And since all public reason liberals endorse these values, they should go for convergence rather than consensus. So that's really the, the essence of the argument. There are other values as well that lead to endorsing public reason liberalism, and I think they're uh, either favor the convergence view or are uh, neutral between the two views. Um, I do canvas some values that you might think favor the consensus view, like publicity, and I try to show that they don't. Um, but that's you know that's the stuff of the the main line of the argument. Right. But so yeah. good. Does now do you see then an additional set of um, constraints that apply to individuals who aren't acting mm-hmm. simply as citizens, right. but as citizens in a particular official role? Right. Right. Yeah. So um, in the sixth chapter of the book, I talk uh, uh, I make two distinctions, um, one between restraint on reasons and restraints on proposals. So restraint on reasons are about the reasons you can offer. Restraints on proposals are about what you may or may not advocate. So you could have no reason restraint but have proposal restraint. You could say you can't advocate this proposal, but use whatever reason you want in dialogue. Mm-hmm. I also distinguish between restraint for citizens and restraints on political officials. Um, restraints of political officials you know, will be ones that apply to their specifically political acts. That is, for instance, making law, adjudicating legal disputes. And I argue that there's a very sharp principle of proposal restraint on political officials because they are actually effective at bringing about coercion. And that is that they're to restrain themselves from imposing coercive laws on the populace that they think 
or that they, they or you know I think properly idealized should think um, that many members of the public have sufficient reason to reject that um, and I ultimately um, describe this as a principle of convergent restraint which follows from what I call um, the principle of intelligible exclusion intelligible exclusion just means that um, in lawmaking laws should not be made on the basis of unintelligible reasons and they should not be made if there are intelligible reasons to object to um, that proposal, sufficient intelligible reasons. So what it does is it excludes from certain grounds of lawmaking certain kinds of considerations. Um, that eventuates in restraint on officials because officials are the ones that actually make the law. So they should not be in the business of imposing laws on the populace that they think cannot be justified to them as specified by the intelligibility requirement. That means they have to be very sensitive when citizens raise defeater reasons, even if they're defeater reasons from their own sectarian points of view. Um, there's very little restraint on citizens, but there is a very serious restraint on legislators um, and judges. Right. And so that, I take it, is a crucial plank, we might say, mm -hmm. in your have it cake and eat it too sort of aspiration, right? right? Because it looks as if, on your view, um, citizens uh, in their reason giving and advocacy uh, confront very few, uh, or we might say confront sort of a, a pretty low bar yeah. intelligibility mm -hmm. for uh, admissibility into public justification. And actual policymaking, though, seems um, to face a more severe oh, yeah. kind of uh, restraint. Yeah. And so there are going to be lots of reasons that are perfectly admissible. Mm -hmm as publicly justificatory yeah. that I don't know how to put it. I mean, is it, would it be right to say could not serve as justification or I'm sorry, uh, serve as justifications for policies that could not be imposed? Yeah. Because, it's, it's, yeah getting the formulation right is a little tough. Right. They cannot yeah. serve as the sole justificatory right, basis it. for a law because there may be, it, it may be the case that you support the law for religious reasons. Uh, I support it for secular reasons. Um, and that forms a kind of patchwork justification. But what it does mean is that religious reasons alone are not going to justify uh, laws and policies, that many people, given a sufficiently diverse populace, um, there are going to be defeater reasons uh, against those laws. And I take it that that's, that that's the element of your view that's going to draw the most fire from um, the camp that's, uh, uh, religiously convicted, but not politically liberal. Yeah, although it also raises worries among the political liberals. So, well, yeah, I was going to say that too. So, I found the much um, more receptivity among the religious critics, um, actually, um, because their worry is about you know citizens being able to conduct themselves in line with their conscience. I mean, you know, my restraint's going to affect a couple hundred people, right. um, maybe a couple thousand if you include state legislators, right? The vast majority of religious people can live in accordance with their conscience, and that's really what they were concerned with. Um, and many of them, you know, find value and restraint even if they don't give it ultimate weight, you know, like Everly. Um, um, so, but there are worries that, you know, if you really think that a lot of religious political activity in the U.S. is about imposing restrictions on people, and I actually think, you know, that's not the stuff of it. There, that's part of it, but there's also more defensive parts of it. Uh, as well. Um, 
so yeah, it's going to block, you know, I, I think a variety of um, uh, religiously based coercion. Um, at the same time, um, it's also going to allow, I think, for uh, quite a wide range of religious exemptions, which uh, gets us into uh, uh, things that have become huge issues, um, really, even just since the uh, book came out um, last summer. Um, um, that we have this whole sort of Hobby Lobby situation. Um, and we have the people who want the bakers and the wedding photographers and so on who want exemptions from uh, serving uh, same-sex weddings. Um, so these issues about um, religious exemptions have become just really hot really recently. But my view does imply a fairly expansive role for uh, uh, religious reasons to defeat laws and so I think to uh, justify exemptions. It raises a complication I don't get to address as much in a book, but I, I have addressed in a recent article. Because if you have a defeater for a law, the state might respond in two ways. It could either respond by just repealing the law or, say, not passing it, or it could carve out an exemption for you. And I have a standard now for when I try to distinguish, well, when should it be an exemption and when should it be repeal? Um, um, and I do think that uh, given the way that that standard plays out, that um, uh, there can be uh, a lot uh, of religious exemptions. Um, the specific cases actually get kind of complicated uh, in the details. Um, like, for instance, the the bakers and photographers and so on. A lot of that has to do with um, that we have certain expectations about when someone is providing uh, a public service that we don't when they're a nonprofit. Um, so uh, and whether we could, I think, publicly justify differential treatment for for profit institutions and non for profit institutions, because sort of right. most people think agree that, well, yeah, the nonprofit folks, they should be able to sort of opt out. Right. You know, like the, a, a church um, mm -hmm. or a religious hospital is going to have certain kinds of exemptions from certain kinds of support for things that they disagree with. Um, but um, but religious businesses now, that's different. Now, you know, conservatives have tended to think it isn't different. You know, more progressive or egalitarian liberals have tended to say it is different. And I think it's actually kind of difficult, although ultimately I, I don't think the difference ends up being substantial enough uh, to forbid the exemptions. Also, I think another of the issues is there was a restriction when I would allow for exemptions when uh, there would be enough of them to which they would create a real stigmatizing effect that, say, would reduce the social bases of self-respect for vulnerable populations. But right. since the number of these people is just incredibly minuscule, um, I think I don't not you know, I actually don't think it's it would have much of an impact at all for them to have the relevant uh, exemptions. Um, um, so if I thought the, the exemptions would lead to stigmatization on the setting back of the interests of gays and lesbians, then it would be uh, the exemptions themselves, I think, would be defeated. Um, uh, but um, in light of the details, right, in light of the incredibly small number of people and the fact I think it's very hard to see. Uh, particularly, you know, just from today with when we're doing this recording with um, the Supreme Court legalizing gay marriage, um, these people are just going to be extremely few and far between. Um, so I just don't think it's going to end up mattering. And in fact, I know, you know, some law professors that actually agree with me that the number of people involved is so small that it, its effects are probably not going to um, have these uh, worries associated with them. You know, in cases uh, like Hobby Lobby, um, you know, that that's. Um, I think 
um, you know, obviously much bigger deal because, you know, Hobby Lobby is a, a big firm um, and a big employer and a big employer. Yeah. And it, yeah. so it has this whole dimension, you know, it's, you know, where the interests of the employees and the employers are pitted against each other, whereas these bakeries, you know, and photographers, they're the they're the you know, they're just self-employed, you know, right. so there's not this tension. So it gets a little complicated um, with Hobby Lobby, um, particularly when you flesh out this idea in um, what's called the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which is a, a law made about 20 years ago that bears on a lot of these cases. Um, they specify that um, uh, you can't uh, impose a law on people when uh, unless the government has a substantial interest uh, and they pursue the least restrictive means. To, to realize that interest. The Supreme Court gave Hobby Lobby an exemption on the grounds that the Obama administration did not pursue the least restrictive means to provide women with contraception. Um, and, you know, I've had discussions with law professors. I actually was just having a discussion with Andy Koppelman about how to work out this idea of the least restrictive means. Um, and it turns out, you know, to de- depend on judgments about politically feasible alternative policies. So I used to think it was kind of a slam dunk in favor of Hobby Lobby on my view. But now I think... Well, if political feasibility judgments factor in to what counts as the least restrictive means, you know, there may be some policy that's much less restrictive, but there's like no chance that right. it will that it will pass. Is it really fair to hold a policy to that stand, that sort of expansive um, uh, notion? Oh, well, there's a law that, you know, it's just like totally out there, but it would be less right. restrictive. And since you didn't pass that one, the law is the law is out. So I think it's more complicated than I thought. Um, so, but in general, the view is going to be much more friendly to religious exemptions uh, than to um, than than the consensus views, uh, and I, I think that's a virtue of the view. But these days, it's uh, making I think the main line of the book more controversial uh, than when I was you know finishing up the manuscript. It's just been you know, a few years. Right, right. So let, let me. Ask, you've been very generous with your time. So I, I just want to ask, sort of, as a closing question, uh-huh. sort of one, um, uh, one, one interesting thing about the book, um, and one thing I realized uh, f- both from reading the book and then from reading one of your earlier co-authored articles mm-hmm. was that um, the public reason, the religion and politics literature, the, you know, religion and liberal politics literature didn't seem to recognize, as you do, the tight connection between the public justification of coercive law and the kind of account we have to give about accommodations and exemptions. Uh That it seemed as if that, uh, oddly, now that you see it, Mm that these were treated as wholly separate uh-huh. or independent kinds of issues. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a very nice feature of the book that you say, well, wait a minute now, the, the, we, we've got to give an account of you know, what would justify imposing a law, yeah. but we also have to say things about what counts as a good reason to resist yep. uh, a law. Could you, maybe more, I, I was going to say, could you speculate, but maybe you've got more than just a speculative answer. Um, why are those two... Are, why are those two kinds of issues treated as so obviously separable oh, in work other than yours? Because um, a lot of it has to do with um, that a lot of the key ideas in the theory of public reason haven't been disambiguated. And so people have gotten focused entirely on the discourse issue because they confuse laws being publicly justified for people with the process of justifying it to them. Right. So right. since they've just been so focused on discourse um, – 
they've missed this other implication that you see when you start to distinguish, um, uh, as I do, between um, particularly like exclusion and restraint. Um, you know, when a, when a law, what reasons can be used to uh, uh, pass a law? What what basis, rational basis, is there is for the law? And the what's going on in the public sphere when you're thinking through the law? I mean, those are very different issues. But once you separate them, I think the role for religious exemptions becomes um, becomes, I think, pretty obvious and pressing. I also think it's a little bit harder on the consensus view to do much with it because um, um, the kinds of reasons that are raised in favor of exemptions are excluded in certain ways from public reasons. So uh, the main line view, you know, the, the consensus view. Um, but but I think the interesting thing about exemptions is that's a place where I think the consensus people would want to appeal to diverse reasons, right? I mean, that's exactly the sort of place that it would be appropriate. So I actually think they're going to be pressed more in my direction when they have to make sense of, oh, why are we taking this person's objection seriously? Oh, well, um, you know, we think it's intelligible. You know, I think that ends up being, you know, now a lot of people think, oh, it doesn't matter if it's intelligible. You don't want the, the court to to be judging the epistemic credentials of people's religious objections. And that may be fine as an epistemic point, um, just about the limitations of what judges can determine. But, you know, um, uh, I do think it's it's going to end up mattering, um, particularly with these issues of vaccine exemptions um, right, right. Um, and distinguishing between just letting anyone who wants one have one or whether you need an explicitly religious uh, exemption or or as I sometimes wonder if you um, are entitled to an exemption at all because you're imposing the risk of a harm on somebody else, um, right. even though it's small. So, yeah, I think once you make the sort of critical distinction, distinctions between the concepts. The issue of exemptions um, becomes really important, uh, and I think even the consensus folks are going to at least feel the pull a little bit of caring about more letting diverse reasons have sort of greater power than they ordinarily would. Well, that's great. Um, so, uh, Kevin Valliate, you've been you've been great. Thanks uh, uh, for your time. You've been very generous. Uh, and um, thanks for appearing on New Books in Philosophy to talk about your book, uh, Liberal Politics and Public Faith, Beyond Separation. You have been listening to my interview with Professor Kevin Vallier of Bowling Green State University. We were talking about his new book, Liberal Politics and Public Faith, Beyond Separation, recently published by Routledge. I'm Robert Talese, your host. This is New Books in Philosophy. Thanks for listening.